What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio 2017. 2K17. Yeah. What's up? It's Dan and Nath. We're hey. back. Hey, how's it going? How was, uh, did you have a good Christmas? It was alright. Yeah, how about you? Good New Year? Yeah. We were wondering how long how long can you rinse, like, New Year's Eve and Christmas part of four with, like, co-workers and things like that? I want, I reckon, March. <laughs> I was gu- I was going to say, up until this, the shops start putting Easter oh, uh, yeah. stuff in, but they've already done that. Have they? Yeah, just, just to curb on people, like, you know, S- using it. Still so. keep talking about Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, it's like, no, Easter time now. It's only four months away. Now it's time to talk about Easter. Yeah. I'm doing Dry January. Are you? Yeah. Uh, am I doing it? No, because you had a beer the other night. Oh, yeah, I was gonna, <laughs> cause I don't drink much anyway. So it doesn't it doesn't it, count. No, yeah, you're not right. battling alcoholism or anything like that. So it's, and and you you're relatively fit and healthy. You don't go drinking. I think the good what I've done I've done dry January and I've overcompensated by just eating like terribly because I thought well these calories I'm gonna be I was gonna be gaining through alcohol anyway so I may as well just have like two desserts or like <laughs> two stars or something like that. Um, just a bag of sugar. A bag of sugar to replace this delicious like sugar Jeff beer. Like Jeff and the Fly. <laughs> I've not seen it. Oh, it's a spoiler. You're a, eats a bag of sugar. Eats a bag of sugar. Your sci-fi... We're going to have to do like a little sci-fi corner, I think. And um, My lonely sci-fi corner. <laughs> <laughs> just nerd, like... Nerd just, yeah, just corner. like in comprehensive school. Yeah. Get it. Get back in there. Just like the profound... Who was that? Bowling for soup. <laughs> <laughs> High school never ends. Profound poetic words. It was, I it? should have put that like a, a bowling for soup quote at the end or start of my PhD or my book or something like that. <laughs> I was watching, like, they, I don't know where they came out over Christmas, and I was looking at, like, Bowling for Soup, and, like, the lead singer is, like, 45, <laughs> like, five years old, and still talking about, like, still talking about the height, this this high school, like, genre thing, and he's wearing, like, high top, va- high top, like, it was either Vans or, like, Reebok pumps or something like that, and I was like, well, that, sh- that shoe had been... That seems like a Richard Linklater. Was it, um... No, fast. That wasn't originally Lingley. Was it? Boy, fast? it was his last last one, wasn't it? Or no, was it? it was everyone wants them. Uh, but uh, what's oh, that? Yeah. Fast, fast times original. Fast times original. Yeah, yeah. The classic college like genre, which obviously then turns into the the porn spoof genre. Yeah. Not that I've ever. That's, I, that's more your area of expertise. So we'll just you know, past it. Right. Got to get money where I can. If you haven't, already, if you haven't already turned off, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, devolution. Basically. The reason we want to talk about devolution um, is because, you know, we always get experts on and talk about the things, or I read off stuff that other people have written, but, you know, this is actually something We've got our own in-house expert. I think I'm an in-house expert, you know, I've got a PhD on devolution. Um, Obviously, I want to plug the fact I've got a book coming out, you know, so grow the personal brand. Yeah, and um, fitness DVD as well. Fitness DVD, which accompanies it. With maracas. Yeah. um, The main thing, like, about the book was when I was, like, trying to get the... uh, the, con- the contract there was nothing in the thing about like the author photo yeah which is obviously the most important part about it like just I thought smoking a cigarette you know I don't smoke or like black leather jacket like ooh yeah edgy writer like or some kind of a Kerouac uh, yeah basically I want to be the Danny Dyer of academia <laughs> or it's so the Danny Dyer or the Wayne Lineker of the Welsh podcast, the Welsh podcasting world. Who? <laughs> Who's Wayne Lineker? Wayne Lineker is Gary Lineker's brother oh. who runs Lineker's bar in like um, Marbella, and like he went to jail. But he's mainly famous for literally. He's about <laughs> he looks about sixty years old, yeah. but he's got like the body of like a 
He's got the face, head of like a six-year-old man, like white hair, and like so he looks like Gary Lennon Crosley. Yeah. But he's got the body of like a like a twenty-five-year-old roid head. Like just he's like got two full sleeve tattoos, and like, and he's basically famous for being a just a sleaze, basically. Yeah. Actually, that I don't want to be the, the Wayne Lineker of the podcasting world. No. I want to be the Paul Hollywood of the. Do you know who Paul Hollywood is? Uh, yeah, I watched Baker. Okay, good. So we're going to talk about devolution because everything we've talked about thus far in the podcast, economics, you know, the Welsh media, what else we talked about? Our gentrification, robots, like and people. Yeah, they all fall within, you know, the the framework of a devolved government in Car- in Cardiff Bay, and we talk about the Welsh government's inaction or the Welsh government's. It's almost the fact that they'll identify a problem, for example, as they've done in the, with the media. They've they've said, oh, you know, we realise that the Welsh media isn't serving Wales properly. We realise that, you know, Wales hasn't got its own indigenous press. They've been saying that since, you know, devolution first happened and people still first started raising questions about the media. Um, But then in the next breath, they'll say, well, we don't actually want to have the powers to do anything about it. Um, And that, I think, for people, that sort of um, inertia or... That seems like a weird paradox for people to understand. The fact, you know, on the one hand, they're saying they're going to do something... Or they identify a problem, but then clearly have no interest in in solving it. Or uh, and then the same goes for the economy, things like that. They recognise, oh well, Wales is terrible in a terrible economic state, but we also don't want any more powers to do anything about it. We don't want you know the levers which could actually give us the ability to do it. Um, so what I want to do in this episode is basically talk about devolution, my critical take on devolution, because I still think that people, particularly people who are you know maybe people who are more inclined to listen to our podcast, I don't want to alienate our viewers, but people who tend to listen to the podcast are people who are, they want change to happen. I think in Wales, they want real radical change, just like we do. But um, we can't really understand where Wales is at, why things are how they are, without a real solid understanding of what happened in devolution and what's going to happen in the future. So if you go back to 1997... You know when Wales, you know, voted for devolution. We've still got, you know, you've got pictures of people, you know, partying down the bay, like you know, popping champagne corks as if it's a really radical. Yes, like we've done it, and and it was a cross-party initiative. The Wales said, you know, Wales says yes thing, and obviously, that was meant to herald a new epoch in Wales. And I think the reason there were these massive celebrations uh, and this this huge like, optimistic fervor, which by the way masked the fact that there was like. The margin was like fifty point three voted yes, which is an absolute tiny, tiny, tiny majority, obviously, and a turnout of like fifty percent, which is incredibly low. Yeah. So a quarter, but something the like quarter of a population had, yeah. had had voted for. Um, and it's so there's not that much of a mandate. The, the devolution campaign clearly didn't energise the people of Wales, yet it nonetheless, at the time, was portrayed in the media and even in academia as being this radical thing that's happened. I think the first, the main reason that that people were so excited about it was because in 1979, when there was a first referendum on devolution in Wales, Wales overwhelmingly voted no, you know, like, and I think that's quite unprecedented. I actually found an article on sort of referenda across the world on sort of self-government, which I'll, I'll link to on the Facebook page and things like that, uh, and on the Twitter. Oh, we've got a Facebook page of... Uh... It's hit 50, 50 <laughs> likes, <way>. yeah, which is <laughs> a good benchmark. But in the gen, generally speaking across the world, if you offer countries more power, they will say yes. So the fact that Wales in 1979 sort of said no uh, is pretty 
aberrant and unusual. And but what that was such a massive blow to devolutionists, people, you know, nationalists across Wales in 1979. People were just like, you know, I mean, imagine what a shock that is. You know, you, you work towards independence or devolution your entire life. You put it gets finally put to a vote. Everyone rejects it, embraces like the British state things like that. Um, I think it was Gwynvor Evans or maybe John Davis. He said basically said Wales has voted itself out of existence. Um, G.A. Williams, or I think, said you know the historian was like Wales has voted to just be completely absorbed into the UK. Like almost, it wasn't you know this implication, this this horrible existential crisis that Wales faced in 1979. And so the fact that there's a swing, you know, in like twenty years essentially to to yes, albeit as a narrow vote, I think that is why people got so excited about it. Like because maybe they the the bar had been set so low. Um, so that I think is the first thing to to be aware of, as you know, as, as Welsh as, as Welsh people, is that when devolution was first voted in, it's by a very very small margin. It's by you know a very low turnout. And so what I think happened, I think basically Evan got carried away in 1997. Academics were saying that this is a, a radical change to like the British state, um, which was you know historically the, you know, the British state was one of the most centralised states in the world, you know. And if you think about, for example, political parties' attitudes towards devolution over the last you know, 50 years prior to 1997, they were so hostile to it. And yeah, I can understand why it was seen as this radical change to state form. But what I want to argue today, that it wasn't you know, a radical change to the state form. There's been interesting statements by politicians. So they look at where we are now with like Brexit and writers will say, like, well, oh, what went wrong? They'll say, how has devolution not worked? And what I argued, and I will continue to argue to whoever, whoever listens, devolution wasn't designed to work. It wasn't designed to give Wales loads and loads of power. It wasn't designed to rejuvenate the Welsh economy, things like that. It was purely designed to safeguard the Labour Party's control over Wales. That's all it was designed to do. It was designed by the Labour Party. It was led by the Labour Party. It wasn't designed to rejuvenate democracy. It was designed to quell protest in Scotland and Wales. It was designed to head off the nationalist threat and just to secure Labour dominance in Wales and Scotland. Obviously that hasn't happened in Scotland, which is one of the most remarkable things ever, given that the actual design, I'll talk about this in a minute, but the design of the voting system in in Scotland and Wales is essentially designed to ensure that no one would ever replace Labour. And the fact that the SNP did it is is remarkable. Overnight as well. Yeah, it's almost unbelievable. They didn't Um, hang about... But they did lay the groundworks in on the local level. But um, right, so let's go back to the history. And I talk about the state a lot, too much. Too much. Some people would say if you ever go to the pub with me. Like, um, but we talk about the state. We talk about when people talk about the state. What they mean is like, oh, the man, the system, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. what they think about. And in previous episodes, we talked about how in Wales, British uh, Welsh people have think about the British state as being. Well, nationalists in particular think about the Welsh state as being inherently, the British state as being inherently exploitative. And that was best, the best sort of work on which summarised that point of view is Michael Hector's work, Internal Colonialism, which was written in, in 1975. But that sort of looms large within Wales. And because what Hector argues is that the British state exploited Wales. And the Britishness, the British identity is essentially a form of false consciousness that Welsh people sort of have been tricked into, you know, buying into. So if you sort of accept that that is, if you if you agree with Hector and you think the British state is like this 
driven to exploit whales and things like that. Um, then I think if you accept that, then obviously devolution represents a radical, will obviously represent a radical change because you don't think that this, you're not seeing that the state is like flexible and capable of sort of absorbing change. You're seeing the state is quite rigid and therefore any change to it has to be quite dramatic. You know, this is all happening. But I think that, you know, so I talk about Gramsci a lot as well. Yeah. As you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I read, I read about a quarter of your PhD. Oh, thanks, man. It was good. It was, um, read the intro and then about... Just read the conclusion. I did read the conclusion and as the well. And the conclusion is, spoiler, I woke up and it was all dream. Yeah. <laughs> the trope that we were encouraged to write in school. <laughs> and the, the academic trope. Yeah, I woke up and it was all dream. Um, so there's an alternative conception of the state, which is put forward by Welsh sociologists like Graham Day, who build on... Uh, the work of Antonio Gramsci. What Gramsci basically says is that the British state in particular, like states like America, uh, the UK, Germany, Western states, were a very sophisticated and flexible. So how the state and sort of the ruling class, the system, it basically gets, it rules through consent. And people talk about this concept, hegemony. What hegemony means is cons- ruling through consent. It's about a certain quality of rule. And so basically what Gramsci says is that states like the UK and America, they don't rule through coercion. They're not like forcing people to... They're not exploiting everyone. Like, or, well, they are, but they're not doing it overtly like Hector sort of claims they were. Instead, they're getting people on side subtly through material concessions. And what he, what that means is basically... Think about the welfare state. You know what the welfare state did after World War Two mm-hmm. in the UK. Basically, you know Wales is obviously a very depressed region, as we know, and they had an effective. The welfare state and the Labour Party just had a really effective regional policy, which moved out like public sector work and things like that, like the Royal Mint and and all that to, to Wales. Basically, re- rejuvenated or propped up rather the Welsh economy. Same in Scotland. Same in the north of England. So what they're doing, you know, the state is providing people with work. It's essentially being nice to people. It's provided the NHS. Yeah. Um, and there's a famous quote, I think, about the the, the welfare state in Wales. Um, and the guy basically goes to, like, the valleys. And he basically says that the people here are massively grateful to the state. You know, this like, because, you know, you've got, you know, social house, you know, social housing, the NHS. And there's a reason they're called, like, the gold the golden era. And there's a reason, like, the Ken Loach... And Owen Jones and stuff. Revisionism, so, yeah. But there's, there's a reason people are so nostalgic about that period of history where, you know, everything was sort of provided for people by the state after World War Two. But it was, it was done in the name of capital, wasn't it? It, it, it was. wasn't like this big socialist project where they wanted to kind of transcend all their values and provide for everyone. It was because the country was so gutted after a war. They needed to rebuild infrastructure and no business would do it. <laughs> so yeah, that's like, you know, you have to vote these things through Parliament and Jim Churchill voted. This yeah, it. this is it and people and people there's a fundamental misinterpretation about the welfare state that it was this massive socialist project rather than a period of capitalist rebuilding. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah, I mean and if you read uh, Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin's work on the making of sort of American global oh, yeah. capitalism, they are arguing that the the welfare state essentially laid the groundwork for neoliberalism by providing by providing so much state intervention. It made it normal because you know neoliberalism requires state intervention, but on behalf of business as opposed to the people. So yeah, um, as as we saw in the two thousand eight crash when the state effectively bailed out loads of private businesses. Yeah. yeah. So 
when Gramsci talks about the, the sort of state, he says that, you know, the state isn't perpetually driven to exploit places like Wales, because if it is, as, you know, some people in Wales argue, how can you then explain the welfare state? You can't. You can't. So, you know, you can say, oh, well, you know, Wales is exploited, Wales is exploited by the UK, blah, blah. Well, how then do you explain the NHS? How do you explain, you know, like social housing, the regional policy which moves public sector work into Wales? You can't. But that's not then saying that the British state is like benevolent or kind. It's just saying that strategically you have to keep people on side. So that's the first part. And Gramsci calls that, you know, material concessions, basically giving people jobs and things like that. Um, But the other facet of hegemony is ideological. So, you know, I said people think, people always say that, you know, um, there's a famous Gwynvore Evans quote, isn't it? He says that Britishness is like, um, another name for Englishness, which like extends over Wales and Scotland. Yeah, I mean that's fundamentally wrong because Britishness is something that Welsh people bought into, you know. And as Brexit has showed, there's always been a a massively strong element of British nationhood in Wales. But Britishness isn't a one size. People think when you, when you think of Britishness, what do you think about? I mean. Most people think personally, about. like you know the you know the flag and perhaps like the quaint ideas of Englishness. Yeah, it, it depends. I don't know. I also like view things that weren't um, perhaps inherently British as British, like, such as um, I, watching Bake Off. Who's that dude? Hot, hot dogs. Who, yeah, who um, <laughs> wore the turban? I was like the Sikh dude. I can't remember his name now. I don't know. Oh, but I was like, he just struck me as being like a really British person, or like that was part of British identity. What multiculturalism? Mul- multiculturalism and such. Yeah. yeah well, in, this is the, and the interesting thing about Britishness and ideology within the state is that it's fuzzy, and so what that what all that means is that it's not a one size fits all. It's not like so Britishness isn't just like the Queen, tea and cake, things like that. Mm. And if you because if you're thinking about it like that then fair enough, you can say, oh, well, that's something that's just been imposed on Welsh people, and if they've actually bought into that, then they've been brainwashed. That's like false consciousness. But the reality of Britishness is that Britishness was related to the welfare state. It was related to issues of fairness, things like that. And it was mediated, like it was created mainly by the Labour Party. So I guarantee you, when you interview people about from South Wales, for example, of a certain age now, like in the 60s and 70s, when they think about Britishness, they will think about things like justice, the NHS, things like that. It won't be rooted in things like Bake Off. the Queen or Bake Off. No, yeah. but it'll it'll be about things like that. So, so Britishness isn't something that's been imposed on Welsh people. It's been something that they've actively bought into. And so, the, obviously, the paradox about the well, and so you can see how effectively that worked by the nineteen seventy nine referendum, where Wales said, "Well, actually, no, we don't. We're provided for. We're provided for politically by the welfare state. We feel British." Or we might feel British politically, we might feel Welsh culturally, like on the rugby pitch, but we don't really feel Welsh in a political sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 1979 referendum where Wales said no, that is evidence of how effective the British state was in getting people on side. That is evidence of, that's how you do hegemony. If you're interested in political theory, that is how you achieve consent. Firstly, through giving people jobs and things like that. And secondly, through articulating this idea of Britishness and things like that. And it should also point out that Britishness has always been underpinned by, like, imperialism and assumptions like that, like, like, by war and things like that. Yeah. So there's always been a jingoistic element to it. But if you... So, 1979, 
Wales says no. So people have obviously interpreted this and said, well, what's changed then from 1979 to 1997? What's happened in that period to make Welsh people go, well, actually, you know, to vote yes? And the the orthodox explanation... It's Thatcherism. It's Thatcherism, yeah. Margaret Thatcher has been called the midwife of devolution because Welsh and Scottish academics have basically said that if Margaret Thatcher hadn't dismantled the welfare state, then devolution wouldn't have happened. And and so the the orthodox explanation is basically that the state moves under Thatcherism from this welfare state, which has an effective regional policy, um, which provides jobs and the NHS and things like that, to Wales and Scotland and the regions, like the, you know, the north of England. And Thatcher basically... Um, but the thing is, this happens across the world, you know, in the 70s. It's not just in the UK, but it's just a, a sort of trend. So Thatcher basically changes the, the state, you know, it goes from, you know, nationalised industry, like the railways, everything gets privatised. Yeah. Um, the regional policy is basically just, they're basically just like, well, screw you, you don't vote for me, as we've seen with, like, the miners' strike, things like that. They abandon this policy of basically to get people to consent to the state. And instead, industry is, like, focused around the city of London. It's almost just like, I don't give a shit. Like, let's yeah. just make out like a bandit make as much money as we possibly can. And so that, according to the traditional explanation about devolution, people get in Wales and Scotland get so pissed off and upset by Thatcher. And what they do, they start to associate because they're getting poorer and they're getting, they, they, they see the state for what it is, you know, as, as a tool of the capitalist class, basically. Yeah. And what happens under when they get so pissed off by Thatcher is that what it means to be British sort of subtly changes. So Britishness is no longer bound up with, like, fairness and social justice and the welfare state and the NHS. People start associating the Tories with England, for example, Mm. which is something that still persists now. And so basically what happens is Welsh people and Scottish people start to feel a bit detached from the British state and they start to gain a political... They start thinking, well, actually, we need we need sort of something to protect us from Thatcher or from the state in future. And then, you know, the logical conclusion of all that is 1997 when yeah. there's a referendum devolution. And then, and then that's, that's, so that's the traditional explanation. I mean, what, what I mean, is, I mean, is that what you thought devolution was all about or? Uh, yeah. Mainly just to coerce different states to, you know, uh, subjugate properly. Well, like a, to, what, so devolve, uh, in order to rule more effectively. Yeah, you know, you, you give in to demands so um, to quell anything worse. Yeah. Same with, I, I can't remember where I hear this or read this, but I think it may be like a France, Francis Fox Piven book, but, or like the central theme of this book was that the welfare state is used to kind of quell civil unrest. Yeah. Same with um, the uh, voting system is you you kind of give a bit back so you can rule more yeah. effectively and yeah, well like not get over, well, that's overthrown. Well, Ralph Miliband right there. Um, but that, and that's, and that, that's, I think, the ironic thing about like conservatives is that, you know, that the, the Labour Party or like Social Democrats is quite clearly the best way to effectively run capitalism because you, you essentially always, you diminish political protest because if you just, start, if you give people a little bit back, yeah. if you give them these crumbs from the top table, it quells protest and unrest so effectively it's just 
it's unbelievable. Yeah, and then this, the state is largely maintained. Yeah, it's changed slightly. Yeah, the status quo is maintained. But whereas you know, the it's just like, no, we're not <laughs> going to throw you a bone and things like that. We but, don't negotiate with. But, but yeah, so but that's the orthodox interpretation. So people say like, oh, the poll tax riots and the Tories, you know, Thatcher attacked the miners. She didn't basically care about getting people on side. However, that is not as straightforward as it appears. So think about right to buy. Right to buy, what Thatcher did, you know, allowing millions of working class people to buy their own homes, in one fell swoop, completely, that's how, that's that's what created mainly the generation we know now of like working class conservatives. Mm. Because it gave people that, you know, aspirational element. And that was an incredibly effective way of sort of, it was people who were just like, well, you know, not, not saying everyone that got in right to buy was conservative, but it was a massively good way of dividing the working class and getting some people on on site, basically. Yeah, my, my dad um, grew up on a council estate in Bridgend, and his sister, obviously, uh, grew up in the same house, but, you know, staunch, staunch Tory. Like, yeah. Well, dis- despite, you know, obviously living through, like, hard hard times. And yeah, because if you buy a house, people, I mean, you create this, I mean, people... The like, idea of success, isn't it? Yeah. All the, and then, like, that adds to the narrative of, like, I'm in the same boat as you... Yeah, you know, and look, I managed to buy my house off the state, and that, yeah, exactly, is it's one upmanship essentially on the local yeah, yeah. level, and um, which is the essence of working class conservatism, you know, being better than your neighbour, basically. Yeah. Um, but that happened in Wales as well, it happened in Scotland as well. So it's not so. There's a simplistic reading of what happened under Thatcherism, as if like everyone in Wales hated Thatcher. Well, they didn't. We know people in the valleys did, but we know people like I know people from Porthcawl didn't. You know, people, um, a lot of people moved from people who move from like the valleys to the south to the coast of the Vale who are Welsh working class people you know their conservative conservative vote was always high mm. relatively high in Wales during the 80s so it's an absolute fallacy to say that Wales is this radical oh we've been detached from the state now we all hate Thatcherism um, and the other thing as well the Falklands War like I mean I mean maybe I'm mistaken but I thought that you know Welsh people were probably got behind and were flag waving about the Falklands as every other part of the UK <laughs> Uh, before that, I think she was really far down in the polls. Yeah, she the was, yeah, of she... being like the most unpopular prime minister ever. And she's about to start a war. Yeah, well, it was, and then, it was, like it the was... idea of like statesmen. Yeah, and it, and, it, uh, and it was great for ratings. And what the Falklands War showed seventy eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes didn't she for the Falklands. <laughs> but what you know, she created a, a horrific, pointless war to boost the ratings. But but what things like the Falklands War and the right to buy do they? show that it's not so easy, it's not so simplistic as saying that, you know, oh, it was just, devolution was just a reaction to Thatcherism. So what I've argued, basically, is that you have to look back, you have to go back to the Labour, when the Labour Party were in power pre-Thatcher to understand the roots of devolution. So basically, traditionally, Labour had been anti-devolution. They, obviously, there have been some devolutionists in the party, but they, their traditional way of dealing with the sort of calls for devolution was just being to to constantly bang on about the centralised system, the idea that the state, the British state provides everything like that. And that's the sort of Neil Kinnock sort of tradition in the Labour Party, things like that. But what happened in the 70s and 60s even was that cracks started to appear in the welfare state before Thatcher. So Plaid Cymru made gains in the 60s in by-elections in Wales, same as the SNP in Scotland. And it was those gains which made Labour sort of put devolution back on the agenda in the 70s which they did quite reluctantly, but they were obviously like, well, you know, let's see if we can throw them a bone and head off the nationalist threat. Because um, it was in, where is it now? Yeah, uh, there were petitions before for, um, you know, uh, 
to create a secretary of Wales uh, during nineteen forty five to the fifties. Labour then in government perpetually turned down. Yeah. And you know, as you're saying, as soon as they got kicked out, need to kind of claw <laughs> people back in, yeah. don't they? And so after nine, basically, what after the nineteen seventy nine referendum, you know, devolution was sort of off. Something that they've been reluctant to discuss in the first place. That was off the Labour agenda for a while then. But what happened then? Obviously, the, you know, the Labour Labour had the massive years in the political wilderness. Mm. They're out of power for ages and ages and ages. And during that time, the Conservative votes growing, and the Nationalist vote is growing in Labour heartlands in Wales and in Scotland. So what that period in the wilderness did for Labour was basically they realised that we need a massive plan to modernise the British state, and a central plank of that was to offer devolution to Wales and Scotland. And that was delivered by you know by Blair. But you know, Blair was a really reluctant devolutionist, but obviously a master strategist. And he realised, well, we have to... Any programme of new government has to offer devolution to the, the regions, for want of a better word, otherwise we're just not going to get in. So the roots of devolution lie in the Labour Party. That's, you know, exactly where they lie. So, so when people think about a popular change... I think that's really mistaken because it wasn't like a popular change. It's something that was led by the Labour Party. Gramsci's got um, a theory to explain all this and he calls it passive revolution. And that might seem like an abstract thing. Passive revolution is basically a period within the hegemony of the state where the state undergoes a change to its form like that we saw under devolution. But instead of it being a radical change, it's actually something that is just designed to perpetuate the capitalist system and keep everything sort of going smoothly. So it it might seem like a... and it, So Gramsci calls it a revolution because it, seem, it may seem like a radical change, just as devolution has been um, interpreted. But he calls it a passive revolution, and the word passive basically denotes the fact that it's not real. It's not a radical revolution like a tradition. So there's a real revolution, like, you know, in Russia or something like that, yeah. and then there's a passive revolution whereby... Oh, there's change, you know, there's change. But then if you look closely, and it's when you look at devolution itself, that's when you you start to work out what devolution is all about. And, and it's when you look at the motor and what happened around 1997, that's when you start to, you can start to understand and appreciate everything that's happened since devolution. You know, why devolution has failed and, and or you know, quote-unquote failed. And again, it's because it wasn't really meant to work. So what... If you look at like when the Labour Party started discussing devolution, like in like the nineties, they weren't even um, they were quite open about you know what it was for. You know, so you got leading Labour politicians basically saying that like if we don't control the Welsh Assembly after devolution, then it's better that we just don't have it. You know, they're just openly saying yeah. like the only reason we're designing this is so we can secure almost almost if we can just write Wales off. Like okay, like, yeah, let's get the Assembly in. To, you know, to Wales, um, make them shut up. Make them shut up, basically, and then we'll basically rule there forever and mm. ever, and just we can forget about it. Then that was, and that, and and again, it's amazing. Like these things aren't disguised in like the minutes of Labour meetings and things like that. It was on Tony Blair's MySpace page <laughs> <laughs> on his on a on his Bebo, like <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, him yeah. and Alistair Campbell. Um, <laughs> devolution basically completely fits the bill of what Gramsci calls a passive revolution. And what he says about passive revolution means that there's always a groundswell of public opinion, and which there was, you know, in Wales. You know, people did start, obviously did start to get, you know, there's this need or we need political representation. But what happened then, that was sort of co-opted and absorbed by the Labour Party and used 
to just ensure that the you know it was used for the Labour Party. Yeah. It wasn't for the people of Wales. It was for the Labour Party. I guess perhaps uh, tenuous link, but similar to how momentum operates is you know it's meant to see be like this grassroots kind of. But it's absorbing. Yeah, but it's basically designed to get people into the Labour Party. Yeah, well, the Labour Party are fantastic at that. I mean, yeah, they, same with like uh, you know the TUC. You know, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In, yeah. Invent like protest groups so you can kind of just draw people to them. And the amazing thing about the Labour Party, and to anyone who's listening, I mean, obviously people think I've got you know beef with the Labour Party, or I you've got a real problem. And I have got a real problem with them, but people think that's anomalous. You go back to like the you know the nineteenth century, the start of the twentieth century. You've got like huge works by Lenin and Marx and Engels, you know, i.e. people that walk on water, like the, the, the kings of socialist theory. And then you've got like so-called socialists in Wales in the UK, in the Labour Party, you've quite literally never read anything by Lenin or Marx about... Because if they did, they would see that, you know, Marx and Lenin just ripped the Labour Party just like 24-7, you know, in their letters saying that the Labour Party basically just is so moderate, it co-ops popular protests and neutralises it, things like that. And... And that's the na- that's the nature of the party. Then Gramsci says you've got to ask whether a, a working class party. He says it play it can play either a radical role, as the Bolsheviks did in Russia, or it can play what he calls a policing role. So it's almost like a, a steward that ushers the working class like in a particular direction. And that's what they've always done. And so in the nineties, what Gramsci says about passive revolution is basically that there are always these radical demands, and they basically get watered down by whoever is in charge of this state change and transformed into new demands. So like John Osmond wrote an amazing piece about how Ron Davis, who was paradoxically in the Labour Party but was very pro-devolution, he went to like Blair and et al. and said, like, here's my proposal for the Welsh devolution settlement. And it was just really radical. It was like an assembly with loads of seats, loads of powers, things like that. So that was like the original thing. Um, it then came back after that meeting and was like, how about it's just like this? And they gave it hardly any power at all. So what they, what you can clearly see, the evidence is all there. that They saw radical demands. Or like, well, no, because that might actually yeah. mess up our project. And so they, um, even the vo- Laura McAllister has written a fantastic thing about how the voting system was very thoroughly thought through as a way of ensuring that, you know, smaller parties, i.e. applied in the Tories, and they would never get a chance of getting a majority in the assembly. It's very hard to get a majority into the weird um, system that we've got in Wales. So that, that's the funny thing about the devolution. No one disguises how, like, you know, like pe- Labour, like after the devolution was granted, all these Labour people are coming out and saying, "Well, Plaid Cymru should be dead now because we've effectively yeah, it's like kind of taken away their reason their to fire. exist." Yeah, yeah. And they were quite open about that, but yet in 1997, people were just like. Ah, oh, forget that. You know, this is amazing radical change, even though it quite obviously isn't a radical change. Yeah. So that happens. So that that is basically, essentially, what happened. It's not a radical. It was not a radical change. And even if there were radical demands, they were sort of co-opted and sort of neutralised and watered down. But then, what happens? You have nineteen ninety nine, the first assembly elections, and Plaid Cymru do really really well, and Labour fail to win a majority. Um, and this is a real shock to the system. Like obviously, because they're like, well, this isn't what we had in mind. This isn't this isn't our plan. We obviously assumed that we were going to win a complete majority in every election, sort of uh, in the devolved institution. And so, this is what I'm arguing is the second part of passive revolution. Um, so Gramsci says that even though these, even though passive revolution isn't a real revolution, 
he says that under these conditions of passive revolution, the state and dominant parties are actually weaker because you do have radical currents and narratives sort of spreading out. People do start thinking these. It's almost like an exciting period, mm. even if it's not a truly radical period. So there are like these radical narratives circulating amongst the populace, things like that. And so yeah, Labour you know didn't do very well in nineteen ninety nine. But what but what happened immediately? They they just adapted straight away. And we're like, well, what lessons can we draw? Because in nineteen ninety nine, Plaid Cymru hammered Labour. They said that Labour aren't very Welsh. You know, they said that you know they they don't they they said that you know they correctly said that Labour viewed the assembly as just like an outpost and that what happened and they they proved that because what happened Labour just parachuted in Alan Michael as the first minister I was like the thing like, where they literally parachute people in yeah they do yeah well what do you think of it I thought it was like a kind of you know simile or no, something they, no, no, no it's not this actual it's a halo like yeah <laughs> a so flare goes up every MP yeah. is uh, trained in parachuting um, yeah. Every Blairite MP is trained in parachuting, and so Alan Michael was put into a little Cessna yeah. plane over the bay, and then got literally parachuted in, smashed through the roof of the new assembly <laughs> building, and landed in his chair. <laughs> I've always been here. Um, so that so when Alan Michael was parachuted in, sort of summed up Labour's attitude towards what they thought the assembly was going to be and its function in in Wales. Everyone wanted Roderick Morgan to be like the first minister and the leader of the Welsh Labour Party at the time. Um, but Labour were just, with the help of Peter Hayne, by the way, they were just like, well, no, you're going to have who... We're going to have someone that's just going to completely toe the line. So they parachuted Anna Michael. That was obviously a massive miscalculation because Plaid were able then to say, well, look, Labour are just taking the piss here. They're just dropping their man in. Mm. Um, so Plaid said that Labour lacked Welshness. They said they're not a Welsh party, they're a London party, which they are. Yep. Um, they also said... You know, look at Labour. You know, Blair is neoliberal. You know, he's he's basically a Thatcherite, and Plaid positioned themselves effectively as like an old Labour party. So they positioned themselves to the left of Labour, and they ate up a lot of votes from people who weren't happy with with Blair with the new Labour project. But obviously, Labour were just like straight away. Well, they reacted to that because they're they're very smart. They're very they're very capable. And so what they did then they they realised firstly right well people think we're not very Welsh. They changed their name, um, you know, so it was the Party of Wales. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, was it the true Party of Wales? The best like Party of Wales. <laughs> yeah, what what up and shit. Yeah. Um, just like a little bit more like, Plyde, yeah. yeah, just like 1%. Wales' favourite party yeah, in uh, Wales. Plaid bid like a million, labour like a million and one. Like yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so they changed the name. Um, they devolved some of their decision-making apparatus to the Bay. And the second part was... Because they realised that people were perceiving them as being sort of centrist, neoliberal, they positioned themselves. In fact, they started going about creating a a different identity in Wales, Welsh Labour, from Labour in London. So that's when you see Rodri Morgan, you know, who then became a leader. Uh, Rodri Morgan's clear red water speech. So he was like basically this big socialist speech, or full of socialist rhetoric, saying that London Labour are going to do. You know, this they're going to go on with PFI in schools mm. and things like that, and private finance. Um, Wales is going to adopt its own radical course in education. In PFI. <laughs> in, you know, in the NHS. Uh, and they introduced a raft of, of what we could call hegemonic strategies. So they abolished prescription charges, yep. uh, free travel for over 60s, carrier bag charges, things like, you know, establish a children's commissioner, all these things which are, I mean, objectively, they're, they're smart, sort of social democratic initiatives but they were done 
to neutralise blood coming. And and if we look at history now since the evolution, that has effectively worked. They all, the other thing they did was they effectively started concerning themselves with the Welsh language, passing pro-Welsh language legislation and things like that. Um, and so what that has essentially done is, is neutralise plight. And so that, my friend, is my take on how devolution happened. It's something that was led by the Labour Party for the Labour Party. It wasn't designed to rejuvenate Welsh political system, even though obviously that's how it was sold. I mean, it was, you know, some of the funny claims about devolution at the time were like, oh, it's going to be an economic dividend. Devolution is going to, like, make Wales richer, even though there's no evidence of that ever working in any devolved system. And it, and it was literally impossible to do with the, with the limited economic levers that the Wales had at the time. So where are we now? You know, I mean, this is what people keep saying, like, oh, you know, oh, devolution, you know, it was meant to be really good, but now it's, you know, it's, it just hasn't worked. And, you know, the thing we need to realise, it, it wasn't intended to work it just wasn't that wasn't what was going to happen um but we are in a bit of a weird period because we can't say that wales didn't change at all so that's not what i'm saying i'm not saying that devolution didn't bring changes it did bring some clear changes to the state system but it's just wrong to say that these are really radical and gramsci calls this moment in time an interregnum and that's a bit of a mouthful but you know he was given a break you know he's written he was in a little, he was in prison, wasn't he? In prison, isn't it? Yeah, the, what he, yeah, hunchback or something, didn't he? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, the interregnum wasn't his uh, term, but he adopted it. And it's basically a period after a passive revolution, like we've got now. And he basically calls it it's like a period of in betweenness, where he says that the old world is dying, so like the old British welfare state mm. is dying, and it is dead. Think about it now. We've got the Conservative government, but he says the new world cannot be born, and so we're in this period where. It's like a power, you know, if you think if you think of Wales, it perfectly fits that bill. We're in a country which doesn't have enough political power to really sort out the economy. Mm. And on the other hand, we've got, you know, the, the sort of the British welfare state, which is, which is dead. Yeah. But Wales hasn't yet moved to an independent state. So we're basically in this no man's land. Devo- that's what devolution is. And what Grancy says, and he says, in this period where neither side has really, nothing has really radically changed up in Wales, for example, he says you get, he says a whole host of morbid symptoms appear. And like, what bugs me about this morbid symptoms thing is that Labour MPs kept retweeting Gramsci doing like the Brexit vote. They said, oh, during this period, you know, this period of interregnum, a whole host of morbid symptoms appear, which is like verbatim what he said. But it's like, well, all right, guy, like, did you read, you obviously didn't read like anything else he's written. He just took that quote off you just found on Facebook didn't he um, like his, his aunt who posts all those kitten and like and kitten then, pictures and, and memes next is the, it's like oh yeah because there's that one going around at the moment memes. of the um, Rosa Luxemburg said <laughs> yeah that people who don't move don't know that you have chains oh, right. and Alex Jones um, oh. of Infowars <laughs> is sharing it and he's actually put his little watermark at the bottom but people are just like yeah wow this Rosa Luxemburg said this yeah so they've obviously read it like you know they're <laughs> really familiar with their work <laughs> you know so for all the Labour MPs or who anyone who votes Labour and like tweeted about Gramsci, like please stop doing it and please stop trying to claim a communist revolutionary for your own party, a, co- a man who got who died in a fascist prison after like you know standing up to Mussolini. Yeah, and people are trying to sort of like equate him with like a social democrat. Basically, what Gramsci, you know, the interregnum came about because of social democrats, like the, like you know in Italy at yeah. the time, like the Labour Party, you know, so. 
the whole host of morbid symptoms, what Gramsci was referring to was the rise of the far right and fascism in Italy. And obviously, it's easy to predict that's what's happening in Wales at the moment because guess what? If you don't have, you know, in this period where you don't have radical options or you don't have the develop the real growth of an independent state, you've got you've basically got a period of nothingness which we have now. People are going to get pissed off. And people in the far right are going to fill a vacuum. That's yeah, what's... you're going to lead to populism, aren't you? And that's what's happened all over the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in a, um, yeah. And that's what... Um, but the interesting thing I think about, people still have this... People are so optimistic about, about devolution in Wales. Like, um, academics looked at... Like, so, <laughs> the 2011 referendum for, for further powers in Wales. That's yeah. what... <laughs> this, is, this is from Richard Wynne-Jones and Roger Scully's book. So Wales by, says yes. By the way, should you say... You're massive fans of Richard and Roger, and you can hope to get them both on the show. But we're going to look at. But, but we're going to rinse your book. No, we're just <laughs> we're just using the book to look at the statistics because people in 2011 there was a referendum on further, you know, lawmaking powers in Wales, and Wales said yes. And then people who were pro, you know, who were got very excited about devolution in 1997 got really excited about it again in 2011. We're like, oh, this surely this proves that Wales. Let's get the pro- band back together. Surely this proves that Wales is pro devolution. All right, so the turnout. In 2011, a whopping 35.6%. Wow. Yeah, so it's more like Wales says meh. Yeah. Oh, good soundbite. It was. Yeah. Uh, good article, headline that. Like So, yeah, 35.6. Hardly the settled will of the people. Then people have said about, there's been polls about constitutional preferences in Wales. Like, as in, what would you rather want? Would you want, you know, would you want the assembly in place? Would you, you know, would you want independence? Would you want, would you want it abolished? So basically, the amount of people who want the assembly to be abolished out of the thousand and seventy-eight people that were surveyed. So people in 1997. I mean, this is fairly significant. In 1997, thirty-seven percent of respondents wanted the assembly abolished, and that's sort of consistently gone down from twenty-four to twenty-three to twenty to twenty to sixteen to two thousand nine, where it's only seventeen percent want it abolished. But what's interesting is that support for independence has just remained really really low and that pr- proves that you know devolution is essentially again it's worked basically for the people who because you know, devolution was intended to power devolved is power retained devolution was designed to keep the united kingdom together can we can we shoe in scotland as um shoe it in as a comparison sure. as you know they've also had devolved powers but recently been granted a, a referendum on independence. Yeah. I don't know where they stand on a second one, but hopefully it'll happen. Yeah, but um, so in that sense, devolution in Scotland has led to independence, isn't it? Or like at least put it higher on the agenda. Yeah. Well, this is um, the paradox of what you know. Gramsci says the passive revolution. Remember, I said like during the period of passive revolution, like the the control of the state is actually what he calls it's thinned. It gets lessened. So it's it's almost like a but, you know, let's not forget that Labour were in power in Scotland. Mm. Everything was going according to plan in Scotland, just like it was in Wales. The problem was that the Scottish Labour Party, you know, I said about in 1999, the Welsh Labour Party were very smart and realised once they didn't do very well, they realised that they had to change and adopt, and adapt rather. Yeah. And they adopt, they became more Welsh uh, in their appearance and they became, you know, very pro-Welsh language. They positioned themselves as like socialists. In Scotland, the Scottish Labour Party didn't do that as effectively. So you have a massive pissed off people that aren't don't come home to Labour like they do in, in Wales. 
also um, I guess culturally um, Scotland is a lot different and like the, the sense of um, identity yeah it's a lot because um, Wales became part of well Welsh law was abolished in 1536 go way back way back way back however the act of union with Scotland uh, was in 1707 so you know you, you have I guess more of your idea of what your country is you know there was the Scottish enlightenment it's, I mean we'll be talking about identity in future shows but you are undoubtedly right that Scotland is it's almost like comparing apples and oranges in some ways because Scotland has such a, a far more great developed sense of national identity and uh, civic identity which uh, Wales just hasn't got so um yeah they got like the financial and um, like banking sectors up yeah, there i mean there, like there, north, there are north there are many reasons why scotland is different why scottish people have a stronger sense of scottish identity than welsh people have a sense of uh welsh identity there are also issues for example you know scott the smp had alex salmon who's probably the most capable politician of the last 20 years in the uk without a shadow of a doubt someone that just used to routinely wipe the floor with the scottish labor party with indeed anyone he talks to because he's one of the smartest blokes ever. But he was also incredibly smart at getting, for example, Murdoch Press on side. He was a, an excellent populist in the fact that the SNP were effectively positioned themselves as business-friendly and as social-democratic as the Labour Party in Scotland, which enabled them to sort of, almost in the way that Blair, you know, sucked in all those Lib Yeah, Dem they assimilate, and, don't they, to win. Yeah, and so that's, you know, the Salmon has sort of had that effect. And the SNP were also very, very smart going after thinking local and going after Labour in their Glas- in Glasgow in by-elections and winning seats on local council. So just gradually chipping away, you know, behind the scenes, which Plaid haven't really been doing in Wales. So there is a reason uh, for that. So, so yeah, what we're basically saying is that, you know, when we think about devolution and, and when we think about what's happening in Wales, when we think about Brexit, when we think about the Welsh media, the Welsh economy, things like that, we have to bear in mind that not everyone wants this end point of, for example, further further powers, independence, things like that. But certainly on a political level in Wales, there are a lot of people with a vested interest, i.e. the Labour Party, even I would say people in Plaid Cymru, who are very happy with where we are now. And so they are happy with just coasting along, with Wales having these sort of very limited powers. And so people think that this has automatically got to give, you know, that with Brexit you know, Wales has got to move towards independence like Scotland. Or they, they they project this dystopian future. They say, well, Wales will just actually be absorbed into England and just be this rump state, England and Wales. But as I've argued elsewhere, what will happen is something in between. We'll just sort of muddle along like this with... And every few years, Wales will get more meaningless powers passed by Westminster. Yeah. And people will make a massive deal out of it. Um but it's also interesting to think that people... I've heard a lot of people say that, oh, devolution is now the settled will of the people. Like, you know, people are happy with the Assembly. But, you know, it's like, I... You know, that not that just getting used to someone being there? You don't have to like someone. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like me and you, and it? Like, you know, we, we live we're, together, don't we? We're yeah. used to each other, but yeah. we don't like... It doesn't mean we necessarily, doesn't mean we necessarily like each other. I'm joking, of course. But um, I wasn't. <laughs> I thought this was like a big confessional oh, thing yeah. where it's just purely professional relationship. But, but people talk about... You know, people talk about devolution and the assembly as if it's here to stay, mm. it's not going. We've got UKIP in the assembly. Yeah. I mean, who are definitely going to start beating this, abolish the assembly, like this. Physically, in some ways. Just put like on Holy Grail when he runs up and yeah. hits the castle with a sword. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, they're going to bring in 
Who was the dude that knocked out um, the other oh, guy? Oh, Wolf, wasn't it? Who, yeah, but who was the guy that knocked out Wolf? Oh, Mike Hookham. Mike Hookham. They're going to bring Mike Hookham down. Named Mike Hookham. Mike Hookham's just going to start jabbing the building, like just punching it and just yeah. gradually knocking it Erode down. Eroding it. Eroding it, yeah. Um, but people, it I, it does make me laugh because, you know, we're both from areas in Wales which aren't, which are obviously very anti, they weren't, for example, very pro-devolution when it first happened. So, like, you know, in Bridgend, you know, all right, the yes vote was 68.1% in 2011, but, you know, I know so many people who are anti-devolution, you know, think the assembly's a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, I mean, there's a hangout with how much, like, hangover from how much it costs, wasn't it? Yeah, there's that, like, millions I mean, yeah, and millions so there's of that, the budget. There's, there's that sort of naive assumption, I think, that everyone in Wales is behind devolution as a political project, whereas you, you only have to go to work. the Vale, the <laughs> Gend, work, yeah, like, check my fate. I mean, you know, Monmouth, Gwent, Cardiff... You know, anywhere, anywhere. You don't have to go to Wales to find yeah, out. You know, you, you know, it's, it's obviously spatial. You know, people think that you know everyone's pro devolution, but you only have to come to, you know, places where we're from to to find people who are extremely hostile towards devolution, and that's on both ends of the political spectrum. You know, like Wales, you know, Labour and Tories. Anyway, we've rambled on enough, and I hope it wasn't too theoretical. This is a welcome back one. We've got quite an exciting. <laughs> In contrast to this show, yeah, <laughs> the rest of them are actually going to be like you know well thought out and uh, and good um, and with experts as opposed to people who are you know people someone just wants to plug their book and PhD. So we've got some interesting people coming on. Hopefully, we're going to wait for one a week, maybe every two weeks, ten days, depending on our work commitments and things like that. Any shout outs, Nate? Uh, yeah. So over Christmas, I'm going to two a shout out to two fallen comrades. The first being um, Kurt Russell, who is my hamster, uh, who uh, who died. And he's buried under a yew tree in my garden now. And the second one to my grandfather, who again died um, shortly after Christmas. Um, so shout out him. Yeah, uh, I, I did speak to him before he died, not after. And he was telling me one of his regrets throughout his life was that he didn't stab someone in, with, in the face with a fork. But really? Oh yeah, he's a really violent dude. Like this was like 50 years ago. That's and he's, he's just still hung up on it till like the day he, he died. He just wanted to try it. No, I think he probably had before. But like, oh, he was right. saying he was in Poland. Cause my grandfather's Ukrainian, and they're in Poland for some reason on holiday. And this <laughs> guy came up to him. At, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the guy came up to him, like, saying, like, oh, can I have a cigarette? And he was like, no. He's like, oh. he kept asking for him. And he just got really annoyed, and he was just, like, oh, holding himself back. So he didn't run. him in the foot. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was quite known for doing stuff like that. Well, I've got to be honest, I wasn't expecting that. As a, as I wasn't, because, you know, you think, like, oh, old grandfather and stuff like that. No, quite quite violent. Yeah those, the, yeah, those are, like, the words of advice. Like, the, you know, my, my grandma always told me, you know. Yeah, stab a man with a fork if he wants a cigarette off you. Uh, any shout-outs to me? I'm trying to think. Shout-out to my homie Graham. As What's usual. been up to this? What did you do over Christmas? <laughs> no, so Graham's been attempting dry January, just like me. Yeah. Um, and he went out on the weekend and obviously got leathered. Um, and he was like beating himself up. He was like, I've been doing so well until I pointed out that he'd done like, what? It was like, like it was two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah. Two weeks. Um, <laughs> so don't give up on your dreams, Graham. You can still do it. Like, let's just have a net dry two weeks. Um, and actually, because he's going to Poland on the lads' holiday next week. Don't so. get stabbed with a fork in the face. Uh so that's it. So um, thanks very much for listening. Um, like us on Facebook. Uh, we'd be more active on Twitter and more active in general. We've had a nice relaxing yeah, we've, time off. And yeah, now we've hibernated, haven't we? And now we're back. Goodbye. All right, see you next week. Bye. Right. Today on How They Do It, Plumbuses. Everyone has a plumbus in their home. 
First, they take the dinglebop and they smooth it out with a bunch of schleem. The schleem is then repurposed for later batches. They take the dinglebop and they push it through the grumbo where the fleeb is rubbed against it. It's important that the fleeb is rubbed because the fleeb has all of the fleeb juice. Then a shlami shows up and he rubs it and spits on it. They cut the fleeb. There's several hizzards in the way. The blamps rub against the chumbles and the plubis and grumbo are shaved away. That leaves you with a regular old plumbus. I always wondered how uh, plumbuses got made. 